This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. Hey there, Feast listeners. Now, I'm not sure if it's hot where you are, but it's been like the surface of the sun here in Toronto. Since the thermometer has officially marked the dog days of summer, what better than an episode on some good old ice cream to keep cool until fall arrives? So just like a refreshing icy treat on a hot summer's day, we have something special for you this week. We've teamed up with Becky Diamond, author of The Thousand Dollar Dinner, to bring you a story about America's first great cookery challenge. Now you may not think ice cream and fine dining always go hand in hand, but in the 19th century, James Wood Parkinson, a man who had made his name serving scoop after scoop of that delicious cold treat, stepped up to represent the restaurants of Philadelphia against the city's arch rival for culinary glory, New York. We'll find out how he charmed the taste buds of both cities through his surprising secret weapon, vanilla ice cream. Today we're heading to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, to the year 1851. It's a Saturday evening in April, the day before Easter Sunday, actually, and the city is just edging out of winter. Most of the snow has melted, and a few trees are already starting to show some leaves. And in 1851, Philadelphia is quite the city. Still one of the largest in the country, it's seen its population double in the last 20 years. More and more steamships are arriving every day on the Delaware River, and the railroad industry is booming, much as it is in the rest of the country. Now it's early evening, around 5 o'clock or so, and if we look down to those docks on the river, we can see the steam ferries letting out their passengers, folks arriving from all over the country. But today we're paying particular attention to 15 gentlemen, all clearly dressed for dinner. Freshly arrived from New York City, among them are insurance agents, newspaper owners, merchants, and writers. Some of the most well-connected and powerful men in Manhattan. Stepping from the steamboat dock into their horse-strong carriages, the mood is light. No one would guess that they were there to settle a long-standing rivalry between the two great American cities. Who had the better food? New York or Philadelphia? Now the New Yorkers, being New Yorkers, were pretty confident. After all, New York boasted one of the oldest and most respected restaurants in America, Delmonico's, famous for introducing the concept of the modern restaurant and a la carte menu service to the American public. Open since 1831, Delmonico's had established itself as the first and best in a city where restaurants were opening at an ever-growing, ever-faster rate. After all, New York was still by far the largest city in America, as well as its largest port, with countless American and international foods bought and sold in its markets every single day. 
So when these 15 New York gentlemen had invited 15 of their Philadelphian friends and colleagues to dine at Delmonico's, hoping, as they put it, to astonish our Quaker City friends with the sumptuousness of our feast, they were pretty sure victory was already in their grasp. And the Philadelphians had certainly been courteous, dutifully complimentary even, praising the magnificent banquet Lorenzo Delmonico had personally organized. Afterwards, the Pennsylvanians had graciously extended an invitation to their fair city, asking the New Yorkers to, as they said, drop in on them some evening and take potluck with them. And so, barely a few months after the Delmonico's feast, the New Yorkers found themselves in carriages on Chestnut Street, making their way to what their friends had insisted was the best restaurant in all of Philadelphia, Parkinson's. James Wood Parkinson hated April. He always had. Born to an empire built on cakes, nougat, and ice cream, April was definitely the low point of any year. No one wanted ice cream in April. Still too cold and windy Philadelphia for anyone to long for those luscious ice creams his parents had made famous. It wasn't wedding season. Way too early. Custom wedding cake orders were still at least a month away. Sure, there was always the Christmas rush, the frenzy of all those Yuletide parties to cater for, asking for the latest and most elaborate confectionery his parents' shop could create. And yes, there was Easter, but its changing date each year, falling anywhere between March and April, well, it was hardly something a confectioner could feel comfortable with. And of course, Lent was disastrous. There were often weeks where no one even stopped by to peer in the shop window. His parents, Eleanor and George Parkinson, had loved to tell him stories about those early, lean years, when they had first arrived in the newly minted United States of America at the dawn of the 19th century. In their homes of Scotland and England, they had learned the fine arts of pastry, of nougat, of bonbons, of truffles, and even, yes, those icy cold desserts, the sherbets, glaces, and luxurious, luxurious ice creams. But ice cream season was short in England, and even shorter in Scotland, and they had faced stiff competition from other sweet shops to tempt the Londoners or Glaswegians' sweet tooth. So instead they had struck out for the new world, bringing the high art of European confectionery to the streets of Philadelphia the very heart of that Yankee revolution, independence, freshly won. Now, George and Eleanor had started small, running a modest tavern. As newcomers, they weren't sure just how much their European sweet delicacies would be wanted in what they saw as rough-and-tumble America. But the Philadelphia they had found in the early 1800s was proud of its culture and its high society yearning to be recognized on the international scene as a town comparable to any of those in Europe. Even after a few years of pulling pints, George knew the town was ready for the patisserie he and Eleanor could provide. Not wanting to risk it all, they started small, opening a confectionery shop next to their tavern, the Pennsylvania Arms. 
With George managing the tavern, Eleanor could focus on the confectionery, offering pies, cakes, creams, and cordials. Now, although ice cream parlors and taverns may seem polar opposites, such joint ventures were actually quite common in the early 19th century. As women were frequently discouraged or even forbidden to be seen unaccompanied in taverns, the ice cream saloon sprang up as an easy way for the lady of the house to pass the time, while good old hubby down a pint or two. But ice cream wasn't just for the ladies, proving popular with almost every person in Philadelphia, male or female. By 1830, the Parkinson's Tavern had long been abandoned. Philadelphia had fallen in love with what George and Eleanor could provide, craving their sweet treats on a daily basis. Ice cream in the summer, cake and pastries for all the societal parties throughout the rest of the year. The Parkinson's became household names in Philadelphia, expanding their modest confectionery shop to include a cafe, ice cream saloon, and eventual restaurant, all located within spitting distance of each other on Chestnut Street. And their son James? Well, he had taken to the family business like a duck to water. From the time he could walk, he helped out in the shop, cleaning ice cream bowls and serving customers. George and Eleanor had had big plans for their son and heir. A formal training in pastry and sweets in France was just the ticket for young James, who was already eager to follow in his parents' footsteps. But it was not to be. As was so frequently the case during the period, childhood disease plagued James, and the doctors insisted that for his health, he should not be allowed to travel. His long-dreamed-of training in the fine pastry schools of Europe wafted away like smoke. But even such a loss was taken in stride. After all, the best confectioner in America just so happened to be James's mother, Eleanor. In 1844, she even published a complete recipe book of all the sweets, pastries, and ice creams featured in the shop, called, understandably, The Complete Confectioner, in which she praised the art as the poetry of epicurism. And James had a front-row seat to his mother's poetic pastry, learning by her side until he had been ready to take over the family business. But even now in 1851, owner and master of not only the ice cream saloon, confectionery shop, but also his own kitchen and restaurant, by all accounts considered to be one of the finest in the city of Philadelphia, James always found himself restless in April. Sitting squarely between the seasons, it was difficult to get any of the local produce his restaurant relied on. His long years in the business meant he had contacts all over the country. In a pinch, he could get Maine lobster, no pun intended, Delaware turkeys, even Georgia peaches. And his city hothouses were a lifesaver in these in-between seasons, where fresh tomatoes or asparagus couldn't be found for love or money in any fields, reachable by train or steamship. But Parkinson prided himself on using the freshest ingredients, which often meant what was growing or grazing in the fields surrounding his Philadelphia home. It was just easier that way. 
But easy was not the word to describe the dinner he was hosting tonight. No, for a man who would keep it August forever if he could, when stocks of corn and summer squash were as endless as the lines at his ice cream shop down the street, this dinner had already proven to be the trial of his career. In the first place, he had been given just weeks to plan. Of course, he was familiar with rush jobs from the family's catering business. Over the years, he had been responsible for making several last-minute wedding cakes. As a not-so-blushing bride, and groom had been marched down the aisle by their respective families. But this just wasn't any wedding reception. This was a battle for the city's culinary pride. It had all been thanks to an old family friend, Joshua Price, who had been a loyal patron of his restaurant for years. Gamely coming back for more in those awkward early years when James was still muddling his way through turtle soups and fried oysters. Heir to one of the most celebrated families in Philadelphian society, Joshua had always praised James's talent. Even when the soups weren't as hot or the sorbets weren't as cold as they could have been and his loyalty had secured him a permanent table in James's dining room. It had been late March when Joshua had approached him after one of his customary Saturday dinners to tell him about the evening at Delmonico's, where the New Yorkers had confidently assumed their city was the best in the country for fine dining. As just one of the Philadelphians invited to the Delmonico's meal, Joshua Price had begged to differ. Now James Parkinson appreciated Joshua standing up for the culinary honor of the great city of Philadelphia. But he had paled when he realized that he had been given the responsibility of defending the city when those self-same proud New Yorkers came to visit. This was a task that would normally have taken months of planning, ordering, and preparing. But then Joshua had lowered the boom. The date for the Philadelphia dinner had already been decided. Parkinson would not have months, but mere weeks, to get everything ready to host the 30 Philadelphians and New Yorkers. The group had already settled on the day before Easter, April 19th, only a few weeks away. Since businesses would be closed for the long holiday weekend, it would allow these New York titans of industry a chance to visit the neighboring city, which even in 1851 involved two different boat trips and a train. But that left Parkinson barely a month to prepare for a 30-person banquet, one which would have to involve at least 10 courses, and also one that would need to show those world-wise New Yorkers the pride of Philadelphian cuisine. To make matters worse, of course, this all had to happen when almost nothing was growing. Many of Parkinson's suppliers were closed until May, at least. Yeah, this was going to be tricky. Parkinson immediately began to telegraph every supplier he could think of. The dinner would have to start with oysters, naturally. Thankfully, the bountiful Delaware Bay was close enough to offer Parkinson an almost year-round supply of any shellfish he might need. And he would need turtle, too, for the soup, obviously. The 19th-century American love for turtle soup was almost unquenchable, 
enough to guarantee at least three shipments of turtles to Philadelphia straight from the Caribbean each week. Getting a hold of one shouldn't be too difficult. And fish? Well, a local shad, a favorite in American cooking since at least the Revolutionary War, was thankfully top-notch. So that at least should be easy. But here, Parkinson hit the first of what would be many stumbling blocks. It turned out... the Tonight on NBC... Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule... Just tell me what you need, what your patients need... To inspire... A revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories. Because it tastes so good. Philadelphia fishermen were a devout lot, unwilling to send their boats out the week before Easter. So unless he was willing to serve week-old fish, there was simply no way for Parkinson to serve fresh, local shad the Saturday before Easter. But he had to serve fish. A standard part of any formal banquet was the offering of usually at least two different fish to guests often presented whole as a sign of their freshness and quality. Well, after a week, the shad would be anything but fresh. Now salmon, now that's always a crowd pleaser, it could do in a pinch. Even though the salmon catches had been long depleted from Delaware Bay, he could certainly get a fresh Maine or Massachusetts salmon, which were always in stock at the New York fish markets. He could get that to Philadelphia. No problem. But what else? Well, there was always the option of hiring fishermen out of state, although the cost would be enormous. Joshua had insisted that money was no object to impress the New Yorkers. And here was Parkinson's chance to prove it. He would telegraph a contact in Virginia who knew anglers who could procure the delicate and delicious rockfish, a kind of bass, that plied the waters there. Now, the rockfish wouldn't be as fresh as the salmon, of course, that could be easily disguised with a bit of bacon and some white wine. With the fish sorted, the rest of the menu fell nicely into place. A range of boiled and cold dishes obviously would have to be served, then a series of entrees, a nice cut of beef perhaps, and some expert savory pastry work would do nicely. The roasts that would follow were snap, spring lamb was a clear choice, the one thing actually in season, Parkinson mused. But even this brought him only to eight courses. The diner specifically requested at least 15 in order to have any hope of rivaling the Delmonico's extravaganza. This meant at least two other savory courses. In addition to at least five different sweet and pastry courses, each offering a number of confectionery, ice creams of course, and pastries. Well, Parkinson was certainly no stranger to sweets. And usually he found that part of any formal dinner the easiest to get through. But with such formal banquets of ten or more courses, 
protocol required a short sweets course actually inserted between the savories. He would be expected to offer a range of nougat, glaces, and elaborately constructed sorbets, known as the coup de milieu, a palate cleanser, before the diners proceeded with the next rounds of meat dishes. Now, making these elaborate mid-meal sweets was not the problem. He'd been making sorbet since childhood. The issue was all down to the timing. There was simply no way for his kitchen, as large as it was, to simultaneously prepare the sweet dishes, as well as the next round of savories, not to mention getting ready for the even more lavish dessert courses that were to follow. It came down to an issue of structure. In the usual Russian dinner service, popular in American and European restaurants at the time, dishes were served all at once on the table, in a style not unlike the buffet, and allowed diners to pick and choose for themselves. But it was hell for the kitchen, as it meant needing to have all meat, fish, vegetables, and pastry ready at the same time. For a standard dinner, sure, it could be done, but not for a banquet of epic proportions like this one. With over 15 courses, a Russian service would be a disaster. So Parkinson made a quick decision. He would organize the banquet instead in the new, very modern, French style, where each course was presented in succession, one after another. That would buy the kitchen some much-needed time to prepare and plate the next course. A bit revolutionary in terms of dining protocol at the time, but it would be the French service that would come to be the gold standard in most European and American restaurants by the end of the 19th century. So instead of being presented with all of one's dishes at once, diners were now told about each course through a printed menu, reminding them of each dish that was to follow. Now, if the diners in 1851 were worried about this slight break in tradition, Parkinson hoped the lavish menus he would have printed would calm their nerves. Several pages long, decorated in gold and containing illustrations of each course, these menus would serve as handy souvenirs of the banquet, a reminder to those New Yorkers of just how they did things over in Philadelphia. Well, that would hopefully solve the issue of the timing of the savory courses, at least. And if they could get to the sweet courses, they were home free. After all, Parkinson was a man with pastry in his blood. These would be the coup de gras, a chance for Parkinson to show his hard-earned expertise in puddings, pies, cakes, and, of course, ice cream. He decided to feature not just one course of sweet items, but very common to the day. Instead, he would spread them over a series of three presentations, one focused on pastry, one on confections, you know, bonbons, hard sweets, and candies. And finally, one entirely devoted to ice cream. Now, he would be able to use many of his mother's cherished recipes. And many of the hard candies and trifles he could even get sent over from his own sweet shop, just a few steps down the road. But the final sweet course, the ice cream course, now, he would gladly do that all by himself. After all, there wasn't just city, but family pride wrapped up in the ice cream course. Parkinson was the only son of the family that prided themselves on introducing the American public to not just one, 
but two flavors of ice cream, vanilla and pistachio. Now, a disputed claim to be sure, there were a number of American recipe books that showed home recipes using vanilla and ice cream a bit earlier than the Parkinson's fame. But no one, it was claimed, made vanilla ice cream like the Parkinson's. The cold vanilla bean speck dessert was the Parkinson's calling card. James's parents even claimed to have introduced the flavor to that revolutionary war hero, the Marquis de Lafayette, at a banquet years ago. By the 1850s, vanilla had become a beloved flavor in ice cream parlors throughout America. Although many folks worried about the flavor's potential for inducing dangerous passions in those who consumed it. Now I can hear the eye rolling from here. Sure, vanilla nowadays doesn't really have a note of scandal or excitement attached to it. But for ice cream lovers of the mid-19th century, vanilla was the bacon maple or sriracha of its day. After all, vanilla was an extremely expensive flavor to obtain. Even today, it's the second most expensive spice after saffron in the world, particularly given how labor-intensive it is to harvest. But more than that, the rapid rise of ice cream as a treat available to many Americans through one's neighborhood ice cream parlor, particularly a place where women could enjoy a dish or two by themselves, often provided a convenient excuse for young couples looking to escape the rigors of Victorian courtship which was plagued by chaperones or parentally supervised meetings. Now, many ice cream parlors, including probably those run by the Parkinson family, even featured private booths, another chance for young lovers to escape prying eyes. It didn't take long for folks to catch on to what was happening down at the ice cream shop. There are even police reports from the mid-19th century when couples had been arrested for getting, shall we say, over-amorous in a parlor's private booth. A novel from 1854 with the absolutely fantastic title Hot Corn capitalized on this trend, incorporating the scandal of the ice cream parlor into its pages, calling them palaces of luxury, where mothers suffer young daughters to eat ice cream drugged with passion-exciting vanilla. As you can see, not exactly the bland connotations we might have with a flavor today. But even these shocking stories of the ice cream parlor couldn't keep Americans away from the delicious cold dessert, and soon it was being served everywhere from cross-country trains to the finest banquets, including those of one James Wood Parkinson. For the banquet in April, he had decided to not only serve vanilla ice cream, but also caramel, lemon, strawberry, and what was often known as harlequin ice cream similar to what we would call Neapolitan in its blend of flavors. He would also feature one of his own inventions, a cold whipped champagne sorbet, a luxurious treat for his wealthy diners. And after some good strong coffee, that would be that. Parkinson tallied up the courses in his head. Including the coffee, that would make... At least 17 distinct courses, each offering between four to five dishes at a time. Now, if the diner sat down to dinner at six, well, that would probably make for almost 12 straight hours of eating. Parkinson made a note to keep a pot of coffee going in the kitchen that night. 
he and his waitstaff would need it. And the price? Well, given the amount of produce he would have to get by train or ship, and he hadn't even begun to take into account the wine pairings he'd need with each course, well, this was going to cost Joshua Price and his friends a pretty penny. Quick mental arithmetic brought the number close to almost $1,000. What would today probably be close to thirty-two grand? But Joshua had insisted Parkinson spare no expense in defending the culinary honor of Philadelphia. And to win a food battle against New York City? That was worth every penny. So it was just before 6 p.m. on April 19, 1851, when those carriages, bearing the food-loving New Yorkers, arrived outside Parkinson's restaurant. The diners entered the front salon with its plush carpets, marble-topped tables, and mahogany furniture. There, their Philadelphia friends waited, and the 30 men greeted each other warmly while enjoying some light aperitifs. Nothing too heavy, not with the meal that awaited them. When the head waiter gave the signal, they headed upstairs, entering a stunning banquet room set for 30. Each place setting offered its own salt cellar, as well as its own wine cooler, ready for each course's pairing. To the left of each seat was a guest's bill of fare, propped up on a silver stand. As the men found their places around the dining room, James Wood Parkinson appeared, dressed in his chef whites. Shaking hands with his Philadelphian friends and introducing himself to the recently arrived New Yorkers, he invited them to take their seats and prepare for the meal of their lives. As the waiters assembled, he wished them well and retreated back to the kitchen. The thousand-dollar dinner was about to begin. So who won? Philadelphia or New York? Well, if you'd like to know just how the dinner went, you can read all about it in Becky Diamond's great book, aptly titled, The Thousand Dollar Dinner, America's First Great Cookery Challenge. She has some fantastic details about each of the courses, how they were sourced and prepared, not to mention the fantastic wines that were served. The book is a great read, a wonderful story of America's emerging restaurant scene in the 19th century. It's available now in bookstores and will be coming out in paperback this September. We'll put a link to her book and Becky's site up on our webpage. And for Patreon supporters, we'll also be including an interview with Becky Diamond in our upcoming newsletter. So if you haven't become a supporter on Patreon already, this would be a great time to help support the feast. To learn how you can become a supporter, visit us at www.thefeastpodcast.org donate. There are lots of other resources on our webpage from today's episode. We'll also put up a link to the Complete Confectionery by Eleanor Parkinson, as well as some of its recipes for that famous vanilla ice cream and a few other Parkinson treats. Also, if you want to read more from that novel Hot Corn, and really, why wouldn't you, we'll also put a link up to that online. We'll also have some images of Parkinson's restaurant and ice cream saloon. Although the restaurant closed in the 1870s, it certainly wasn't the last America heard of James Parkinson, who continued to work in the food industry for the rest of his life, 
founding and editing one of the first journals dedicated to food professionals, called the Confectioner's Journal. Although not a household name today, Parkinson helped to define the very concept of American cuisine, and called not only the country's produce, but also its chefs as among the best in the world. There's also lots more on the history of ice cream, and particularly the history of the not-bland-at-all vanilla bean. We'll put up some links to some great resources on the website, and if you're not tired of ice cream yet, NPR's All Songs Considered podcast recently put out an entire episode dedicated to ice cream songs. So grab a scoop and give it a listen before the dog days of summer are over. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Special thanks to our technical director, Mike Port, who spent this week trying to figure out all the possible meanings of the phrase, hot corn. Soundtrack this week included some great music by Kai Engel, Poddington Bear, Will Bangs, and the Blue Dot Sessions. You can find links to all the songs we featured on our website. And of course, a very special thank you this week goes to Becky Diamond, whose great book was the inspiration behind this episode. That's all we have for you this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more great tales from the dining tables of history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.